just further pray as we come to examine God's word together. Father, we do thank you that you have spoken. And so as we've sung that by your spirit, would you speak to each one of us now through uh, your word. Leave us, uh, Lord, please don't leave us unchanged as a result of gathering and hearing you speak to us this day. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, why is it that some drift away from the Christian faith? Why do some people drift? I think there's lots of different reasons for that, and we're going to examine some of those reasons over over the coming weeks and months. One of them could be that we just have a very strong desire to fit in with the society and the culture around us. And the culture is definitely heading in a post-Christian direction. Uh, The Scottish Household Survey of 2006 was published in the papers this week, and it identified for the first time on record that a majority of Scots have been shown not to belong to any organized religion. And the rise of, of non-believers seems to be largely at the same time as the, as the rate of decline of those who identify themselves as belonging to the Church of Scotland, with a fall of about 10 percentage points in just seven years, uh, standing at about 24% of, of the Scottish population. So the culture is moving in a post-Christian direction. And we all desire to fit in. Uh, that affects us both personally and even as uh, church denominations. As society shifts, uh, we see denominations beginning to shift their positions on the authority of Scripture. Uh, And so they're redefining things like marriage and sexuality and gender uh, so that churches can be seen to be more more welcoming and and less challenging, less threatening to this post-Christian culture. And as culture shifts and denominations shift, Christians who hold to a high view of the authority of of the Bible, who want to hold on to its biblical ethics and its exclusive claims about Jesus Christ, well, well, people like that, people like us, are made to feel more weird for believing those things. Uh, The charge of being bigots is being thrown around, and actually we're seen as being kind of dangerous And this is quite uncomfortable. Uh, To some, it's caused a a movement of Christians who want to see themselves as more progressive in their understanding of theology and what the Bible has to say. Now that word progressive, I think whenever it's used, is is a kind of a really um, sneaky little word. Because it just sounds so obviously right on, to be on the right side of history, to be progressive. But actually, it is essentially refusing to believe what God has said in the Bible. Being progressive is just kind of a stepping stone to atheism. Now that's not me saying that. That was an article I read this week by a guy called Bart Campolo, the son of Tony Campolo, who has written of his gradual shift from Christian faith to atheism. In Premier Christian Magazine this week, uh, uh, it quotes Bart as saying this, I pass through every stage of heresy, It starts out with sovereignty goes. 
then biblical authority goes. Then I'm a universalist. Now I'm marrying gay people. Pretty soon, I don't actually believe Jesus actually rose from the dead in a bodily way. And now Campolo is a, is a humanist chaplain, and he's predicting in that same article that, that 40% of those who are now progressive Christians will become atheists in the next 10 years. Anecdotally, as a staff team this week, we, were all, we all knew people who once said that they were Christians, but now it's pretty hard to work out whether that's the case. People who got baptized, having professed their faith in Jesus, who, who'd been very involved in church life, who had um, gone on summer beach missions even, but now have just drifted away from those interests and commitments. Now, how does that happen? Why does that happen? And what if, you know, we're sitting here today in church and we're the ones starting to feel spiritually stale? Uh, what if we're the ones who are beginning to lose confidence in our Christian faith? What does God have to say to us about that? Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. And if you have a church Bible, you'll find that on page 1201. And we're starting a new series this morning where we're going to be working over the coming months through this letter, the letter of Hebrews. We don't know who the human author was. Was it written by Barnabas or Apollos or the Apostle Paul? Well, we don't know. But we do know the purpose. Because at the end, in chapter 13, you can read, he says, look, I've written to you this letter of exhortation. I've written briefly, he says. 13 chapters, according to him, is brief letter of exhortation. And I'd encourage you, um, over the next few weeks, to try and sit down and on a few occasions, just read through the whole letter all the way through. It'll really serve you well. You'll get much more out of these Sunday sermons if you've tried reading it through a few times. And as you do that, you'll discover something of the context of the, the, the people who are reading it or hearing it read for the first time. They started off really well, despite Christian persecution. But now it seems as if there's uh, a bit more of a of a struggle. Something's gone wrong. They'd lost some of their earlier enthusiasm. They were in danger of losing their original confidence in Christ. And what they needed and is the same as what we need if we're starting to go stale and fuzzy. And that is to focus our eyes on Jesus. To Fix our eyes on the one who is described in this letter as the author and perfecter of our faith. And so without the usual greeting as introduction, this writer puts before us the unique glory of Jesus Christ. So let me read these opening four verses of chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to this. Now why is drifting from Jesus so serious? Why, why should we fix our eyes on Jesus and never let go? I think there are two main points from these verses. Because firstly, the Son is God's final word. And because secondly, of the Son's finished work. Those are the two things I want us to examine this morning. Two reasons we should keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because the Son is God's final word. And because of the Son's finished work. So let's think about those two points. Firstly then... The Son is God's final word. Now, if you're, if you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, it's the first time here, well, I've got some amazing news for you. Uh, the God who made the whole universe out of nothing and who made you, you can know this God. Because this God has made himself known. This is a speaking God. You can personally know this amazing God because this God has chosen to speak to us. That's the claim of the Bible. And the writer of this letter describes two phases of this communication. Uh, God spoke through the prophets, verse 1. Verse 2, God has spoken to us by his Son. I want you to notice the continuity. It's the same God who speaks in both phases. But there's something final and complete in God revealing himself in his son. And the writer just goes on to describe that in a number of ways. There's these two time phases. Did you notice that? He spoke in the past to our ancestors through the prophets. But in these, verse 2, in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son. You see, there's something climactic about the revelation of of God coming in his Son. This is the kind of the final stage of of history that everything's been moving towards. And and, and here's the ultimate. He has now spoken to us by his Son. While in the past, God spoke kind of through a whole range of different prophets through people like Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And he did so in a fragmentary, in an incomplete, in a preparatory way, as it says here, in many times and in various ways. But then God spoke in these last days fully, finally, and decisively through his son, his one and only son. That's the point. The Son is God's final word to the world. God has nothing greater to say to the world than what he has already said through his Son. 
There is no more revelation from God or about God required after Jesus. You know what? There have been lots of self-appointed prophets or religious leaders who have claimed to bring extra revelation from God. Don't believe them. Whether that's Muhammad or Joseph Smith or the Watchtower or Christian leaders that claim to have moved beyond the Bible in their experiences, don't believe them because the Son is God's final word from God. And if that is the case, then all we need to truly know God and to live for God is to read the Bible. Verse 1 and uh, verse 2 essentially describes our Christian Bibles. Uh, The first 39 books in this Bible, uh, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, are the record of what God spoke to ancient Israel through the prophets who pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. And in the last 27 books, the New Testament are the eyewitness record of the life, the teaching, and the significance of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the revelation of God through his Son. And what we've got described in these two verses is essentially the whole Bible. And actually, if we want to know God, we need both the old and the new. That's why it's all put together in one book, the Bible. Right the way through this letter, as we study the letters of the Hebrews, we're going to see he quotes so much of the Old Testament scriptures. And and he applies them to the Christian through Jesus because it's all fulfilled in him. Uh, He quotes the Old Testament words that God spoke in the past and says, well, God continues to speak them to us today. So in chapter 3, we're going to read about, uh, he's going to quote extensively Psalm 95. But before he does that, he he says this words. So as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, God's Spirit is still speaking this ancient psalm to his Christian church in the time that... uh, Uh, the the, the, the letter was written and it continues to be so today. You see, the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ. The Old Testament uh, continues to speak to us today through Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament actually will help us have categories so that we can understand who Jesus is and what he's done. We'll never properly understand the fullness of Jesus unless we've understood our Old Testaments. That's why we kind of do preach to the Old Testament as well as the New. That's why we teach the Old and the New in Sunday school and we study it in our small groups. We need the whole of the Scriptures to come to know God and all He has to say to us through His Son. Uh, And I kind of almost feel sorry for you if you've not had a Sunday school background, but don't worry, you can catch up. We can help you. Because as we study the... um, The Old Testament, it tells us the history of God's saving acts uh, for his people of of Israel. How he saved them from slaves in Egypt, uh, rescued them, delivered them, brought them to Sinai. uh, The the, the covenant that came through Moses kept them safe as they wandered to the promised land. And, And you read about how God has designed a way that these people who are still kind of they're out of Egypt but they're still very rebellious and sinful how can they relate to a holy God and there's a whole system in the book of Leviticus if you've never read the book of Leviticus well you're in for an interesting experience and you should have a read of it because you're never really going to understand Hebrews until you've really dug into Leviticus 
A lot of the categories there are being used in the book of Hebrews. Because through the tabernacle, this special tent that God said should be built and put in the middle of the camp so that God would be always present amongst his people as they wandered around, the way to approach God was through these animal sacrifices. Um, It may seem very strange to us today, but actually as we dig into the, the whole Bible, we'll see in 3D, super high definition, who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus underlined this as he spoke to um, the, 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 the Jewish scholars in his day. He said this to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That's the whole point of the Hebrew Scriptures. They point us to Jesus. They point us to come to him that we may have life. That's what Jesus taught. Now why is this revelation of God through Jesus, his son, so definitive? Well, the writer fills it out. Look at verse 3. Look who he is. Look who we're dealing with. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. See, what is stressed in these opening verses is this extraordinary claim that this man of history is also fully God. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And the Bible tells us that God is spirit. Uh, we, we can't see God with our Uh, with our eyes he's invisible to our eyes and yet at different times he gave a kind of a visible manifestation of his presence he revealed his glory it says at Sinai when they heard the the ten words the ten commandments they they heard God speaking to them and they saw a fearsome sight this mountain of Sinai shaking and rumbling and fire and smoke as God came down upon the mountain and revealed something of his glory when they eventually built this tabernacle and, and fully put it together, uh, God revealed his glory. A cloud came down and enveloped the tabernacle as a visible representation of his presence, a, a manifestation of his glory. He filled it, it says in Exodus. On another occasion, we read about Moses actually getting to see the after effects of God's glory, where God had been. Just the after effects of God's glory was enough to make his face shine. Well, here's the point. The reason that Jesus is the final word from God is because he is God. Like the rays of sunshine actually bring the sun with it. Jesus manifests and personifies the glory of God. That's what uh, John the disciple says in, in the opening of his gospel account. The word became flesh. So John knew this, this man walking around Palestine 2,000 years ago. And this is what John's summary is. The Word became flesh and is dwelt amongst us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only way that John could describe his experience of being with this Jesus is that here was the glory of God manifested supremely in this person. 
Everything about the way he spoke, the way he lived, the way he died, the way he rose, revealed the glory of God. Do you, do you want to know what, what God is like? Do you want to know what God is like, the God who made you? Look at Jesus. Read about him in the gospel accounts. See his humility, his mercy, his grace, his majesty, his compassion, his anger. Look at how he related to women, to men, to children. Look at how he related to those in authority, those under authority. Look at the way he related to the religious and to the outcasts. And then you will see what God is like. Do you want to know God? Look at Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. Second statement about his, uh, his unique divinity and is the next phrase in verse 3. And he's the exact representation of his being. And the idea is like a, a press pushing a design into a piece of metal uh, so that now the metal bears exactly the imprint of the design. Uh, later in John's Gospel, Philip, another one of the disciples, says to Jesus, uh, show us the Father, show us God. And Jesus replied, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been uh, among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the exact imprint, the exact representation of his being. Do you see why it's foolish to say to God, we need something more than Jesus? That's ludicrous. The Son is the final word from God. And there's even much more in these verses. It's, it, it, there's so much in these opening three verses as it tells us not just about uh, who he is, but what he does. Verse 2, God made the universe through his Son, it says. Verse 3, the Son sustains all things by his powerful word. Back in verse 2, and so the Son is the rightful heir of all things. Now, do you see why drifting from Jesus is so serious? To drift away from Jesus is to head away into a fantasy world, away from a true knowledge of, of God and reality itself. Uh, atheists sometimes say that Christianity is made up by people who are frightened of the dark. But the truth is that atheism is something made up by people who are frightened of the light. You know, if you want to understand ultimate reality, then you need to come to know there is a God who made everything. And you can know him by looking at his son, Jesus. You know, we can infer some things about God by looking at his creation, his handiwork. But the only way you're going to truly come to know him is by looking at Jesus Christ, the final words, the radiance of God's glory, the exact uh, imprint of his nature. And so what utter madness to drift away from the one who made you and actually who sustains you. To drift away from this Jesus is not only to head into darkness, but is to head towards hopeless despair. Because he is the only way our sins can be forgiven. And that's the second point in these verses. Because of the son's finished work. Uh, look at the second half of verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty in heaven. Now, in in compressed language, uh, the writer is telling us that the one who created the universe, the one who created the Grand Canyon and butterflies and human beings came into the world as a man in order to redeem and rescue sinners like you and like me. All the Gospels focus really on the last week of the life of Jesus and especially on his death. How strange uh, for, 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 the, for our lives. That's not what uh, biographies focus on. They focus on the whole life. The death is a, is a small bit at the end. But it was all about his final week and his death. Why is this the focus? Because if you're going to understand that God has to say to us in Christ, you need to understand that he came to be our saviour. He came to be our rescuer. And uh, really kind of, this is very compressed language. And we're going to dig into this much more deeply over the coming weeks and months. But with the background of the the book of Leviticus, God, God was teaching his people through these animal sacrifices some very vital things that we need to understand. Firstly, that our sin and rebellion against God is is so serious that it deserves death. But God in his grace showed them a way that that they could have their sins forgiven. And if they brought an unblemished lamb or bull, they would lay their hands on the animal as an identification with the animal, and animal, and they would confess their sins, and that animal would be killed as a substitute for them. And then the blood of the animal would be applied on the altar. And uh, other bits of the animal would be burnt on that altar by the priest. But the partial nature of this solution was obvious to all because the priest never got to sit down. No sooner had he made atonement for somebody's sins, then another sinner comes. And the same sinner comes back the next day. And the priest is constantly working constantly offering sacrifices. Now that whole Levitical sacrificial system which they practice, you can read about it in the book of Leviticus, is all there to highlight this fundamental problem that we have, that you have today, that we are sinners before God. And our sin deserves death and punishment before a holy God. But God in his grace has sent a savior, a substitute. All these animal sacrifices were pointing forward to the coming of Jesus who willingly came to be a substitute for sinners. Uh, If you just put your finger in there and turn over to chapter 10 and uh, look at verse 11. It fills this out a little bit. I think we're going to get to chapter 10 until 2018, so uh, we'll have a look at it now. Chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus, but when This priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. 
He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So you turn back to chapter one, you see, if you, if you put your trust in this Jesus to pay for your sins, so you can be forgiven by God, do you know what, there's nothing more that you need to do to be forgiven. He has completed the work of salvation. He sat down at God's right hand. See, when you take the rubbish outside and uh, you put the bins out for the bin man the next day, you can sit down. And uh, your spouse shouts to you, have you put the rubbish out? And you say, well, I'm sat down. It's done. It can't be done again. It's, it's been done. No one else can do it. It's been done. And that's the point. There is nothing more to be done to be forgiven of our sins than simply to trust the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's no need to kind of prove your worthiness. There's no need to whip yourself. There's no need to add to the work by some agonizing, painful penance. There's no need to re-sacrifice Christ in the Mass. He has provided purification for sins and he sat down at God's right hand. See, the last words of Jesus from the cross were these. It is finished. It's done. So going back to my concerns at the start of this sermon, the cure to stop us drifting away from Christianity is to fix our eyes on this Jesus. The Son is God's final word to the world. There's nowhere else to go to know the truth about God. Why drift from him? Instead, attentively and obediently listen to him. Don't stop reading and trusting the Bible. Make the most of the opportunities to come Sunday by Sunday to, to study the Bible, to get involved in a growth group or, or young adults or, or time out or international fellowship. When you understand that the Son has not, is not only the, the final word, but he has finished the work of salvation, there's, there's nowhere else to go, is there, to get right with God? Why drift from him? He is the only person who can purify us from our sins. He's the only one who can make us right with God. Looking at Jesus will fuel our joy, our thanksgiving, will strengthen our faith and our confidence and increase our determination to keep trusting him who is the all-sufficient word and saviour. This is the one who died for us, who was raised for us, who is uh, ascended and seated at God's right hand for us, and even now orders all things towards a glorious future by his powerful word. Fix your eyes on this Jesus, the final word and the finished work. Let's pray. Father, we do want to pray.
for those who are feeling that they're going stale in their faith. Whether it's through distractions or fear of disgrace. Or Lord, would you strengthen them and strengthen us all by gazing upon Christ. Father, we pray for those who are just feeling so grieved by their sin. Help us to so look to to Christ and trust him that we will know that it is finished. The work is done. Lord, would you keep us from the taunts of Satan? Help us to persevere and rejoice in your one and only Son. We ask this in his name. Amen.